Hi, and welcome to episode three of ContraCast. My name is Kat Boyd, and I'm joined by my co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? I have prepared these very special drinks for David and I today. This is, uh, my friend actually sent me the recipe for this. It's non-alcoholic. Like, mm-hmm. I don't drink. David does occasionally partake. But I've prepared these uh, beautiful non-alcoholic smoothies because my friend sent me this recipe. And so I'll tell you what it's called and what's in it. And please feel free to um, make your own at home. You know, you can really like feel like you're you're sitting here with us. So the recipe that <laughs> she sent me, I don't know what book it's from, but this is a drink called the Ms. Lewinsky. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what's in it is um, two plums. Mm-hmm, of course. One banana. Yes. Eye roll. Uh-huh. <laughs> and some coconut water. A handful of nuts. Yeah. And some, and this is a direct quote from the recipe, some ice, ice baby. Okay. So, please. Get, well, before I slurp it, I want to give a little visual appreciation. Why is it a bit, got little red bits in it? Um, that, that'll be the, that's the plums. Because um, it's making me a bit worried about Bill's old boss. <laughs> Uh, because there shouldn't be lots of little, you know... What I will say is... Red bits in your, in your spoonkin. What I will say is it's a bit lumpy. <laughs> Sorry. So here, down the hatch, here goes uh, here goes Bill's lumpy bodges. Well, to Monica Lewinsky. To Monica Lewinsky, Cheers. okay. Uh, David is now sipping. Mm. I think I think you'll find it quite delicious. I wasn't sipping, I was gobbling it down. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> You've been desperate to use yeah. that line. <laughs> uh, gobble, gobble. <laughs> it's very delicious, mm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I quite like it, actually. Yeah. Because, I mean, when you have a beverage that is put together entirely on the basis that, you know, you can make cock and ball jokes out of it, <laughs> you don't necessarily expect it to taste nice. No, um, but it does but taste it's all nice. right, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Uh, it was all just sort of by chance that my friend sent me that recipe. Um, but I do love Monica Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she's a really, really fascinating character. And of course, this new show is coming up. Yeah. American Crime Story. Mm-hmm. The next series is going to be, uh, I think Monica Lewinsky's involved in the making of it. And it's going to be about this sort of Lewinsky-Clinton affair. Yeah. But was, it, was a crime actually committed? I've just opened the can of one straight away Yeah, I mean I mean, my interest in it is Monica Lewinsky's relationship with Clinton himself Mm -hmm. and although he is like, he's up there with the baddest of bastards Mm -hmm. um, that actually, like, Monica Lewinsky kind of, like, refused a lot of the narrative that was around her about, like, you know, her being a homewrecker, but also that she was a victim mm-hmm. in any any kind of way, although there are loads of women who were actually, like, victims of Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah. Um, Monica Lewinsky always rejected that label, and I do think that that is quite an interesting aspect of the development of, like, American feminism as we now know it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I mean, I remember that that scandal breaking very clearly. It's kind of mad when you're reading articles about American Crime Story and you realise that this is going to be a show, and that plenty of the people who are tuning in to American Crime Story are not going to be of the age where they remember this happening. We've actually we've now reached that age where you know there's historical programs being made <laughs> about events in our lives about events in our lives and I do maybe we have some kind of arrested development but I never really feel that old and then someone will point out that someone going to university for the first time this year wasn't alive when 9-11 happened yeah <laughs> or something like that yeah yeah um, the only thing because I would only been at 7 or 8 at the time that this scandal really erupted and um, I was telling you before we recorded this that there's only one thing I actually remember from it. And we both said sort of cigar at the same time. I didn't understand what that was. Yeah. I kind of, I also wish I still didn't understand what it was in a way. Like I really, like I long for those days of <laughs> innocence. <laughs> yeah, because I, mean? I, uh, I was sitting in my living room and me and my dad were watching TV 
You know there's those terrible moments in your childhood where you and a parent are watching television and then something about sex comes on the television and it's just deeply scarred. Thinking about my mum and dad listening to this whilst you're saying that, uh, it's making me die inside. <laughs> and uh, I just remember uh, there was a news bit of news footage on and you had that sort of uh, newsreader, a very British newsreader voice, just saying absolutely everything completely matter-of-factly. Um, and then, and he just said, the court also heard how Mr. Clinton inserted a cigar into Miss Lewinsky's <laughs> vagina. <laughs> right? They were not that explicit. No, I, I'm pretty sure they were, but I just remember my dad just sort of going, Jesus Christ, like that. <laughs> it's the most classic Ayrshire way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, horrified. Um, I mean, I'm really looking forward to this show coming out. Um, I read Monica's story, the book by Andrew Morton, who also did Princess Diana's story as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating read, you know, because you're confronted with this woman who, like, in my sort of pop part, as part of popular memory, my recollection of her is of this kind of fairly plain, like, attractive, but plain looking woman. Like, she wasn't a major, like, pussy cat, Marilyn Monroe type mm. character. Mm. Like, that's what I was supposing a cartoonish way would expect from a kind of affair with the president type story. Yeah. If that was going to be Hollywood, they wouldn't pick someone like Monica Lewinsky. But I remember, you know, the stuff about, like, oh, she's a homewrecker or she's a victim. And now reading that book in adulthood, the Monica story, one by Andrew Morton, when she describes her, like, the intimacy of her relationship with Bill, mm-hmm. which isn't the cigar stuff. That is not what I mean about the intimacy of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how a woman comes back from, like, that level of humiliation, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, but I think that that's only testament to her character. And mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? At least, like, some sense of herself that she must have had. But in this book, she talks about the romance between her and Bill, like, her genuine affection for him and um, these tender moments. Um, and it seems like, I mean, she talks about it like it's a, a real relationship, and I put that in scare quotes. And yeah. I think it's only now, like, I think it's only in the last year or so, because all of this happened, like, way, like, pre-Me Too and, like, kind of awareness around that. But she now does say, well, maybe there was a degree of power imbalance between, you know, the the most powerful man in the world and an intern. Yeah. Yeah. And so she does say it now, but for a long time, she was, you know, portrayed in these various ways. And I remember, and there's also a really good podcast on this called Slow Burn Mm -hmm. that goes through the Clinton Lewinsky scandal, but also the various scandals of the the Clinton presidency. Mm. Um, But they talk about the, the, in this podcast, they talk about the alliance between the kind of the moral feminists and the the kind of Christian right yeah <laughs> um, which is kind of like feel sorry for Monica Lewinsky Bill must burn but she is a victim but she has done like all of these different things about like Monica isn't like a true sister because she's a homewrecker mm-hmm. um, you know all of these things about Monica Lewinsky's agency because mm-hmm. that's how she sees it is she says that she had agency she was attracted to this man blah 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 mm-hmm. and you have this real split between the kind of like the moralizing feminist movement but also the libertine mm-hmm. feminist movement which is women do have their own sexual agency um, and I just find I find the whole thing fascinating I find do you know what I find fascinating with the Clintons that I couldn't have understood at the time I mean you're saying all of the scandals that surround the presidency of course I don't remember any of that and my political memory really goes only goes back to Bush Jr um, and his 2000 uh, and hanging chads and Florida and all that stuff. Um, I think it's a fascinating development of America of the American system that the country is essentially being run by a succession of crime families. You know what I mean? And the Clintons, um, it's not just that they've covered up all of Bill's behaviour over the years. Well, yeah, his his sexual crimes. Yeah. Um, it's also that they have amassed a gigantic financial empire um, whose dealings are very suspect, right? And they've mm. accumulated a gigantic amount of wealth. But so, of course, the Trump. And he's setting up his daughter as the leader of the, the dynasty yeah. when he's when his brain has yeah. finally succumbed, right? <laughs> but that's also true of the Bushes. Yeah. George Bush's uh, oil empire was, a, was like fake. 
Like yeah. it, it was based on like these like uh, outside investors who kept coming in and yeah, like saving his, his crap oil fund that wasn't working and stuff. I find that just fascinating. The thing with the Clintons is that obviously is like you're saying like it's not part of our memory of it. Mm. It's very much like when I speak to like my parents about it and they obviously were watching Bill Clinton and he was seen as this very charming Kennedy-esque saxophone playing like type president which after like the Bush years is probably very refreshing for mm-hmm. a lot of people um, but the the first scandal that hits them has Hillary Clinton at the centre of it and this is a huge this, um, whitewater scandal like it's massive and it drags her right into it so that 20 years in the future when you have someone like Donald Trump standing up and saying Hillary Clinton is a crook mm. that rings true to the American public mm-hmm. it does in a way that I don't think at the time like I didn't really analyse those parts of it I mean I do detest the Clintons Yeah. Um, I think Hillary is can I say evil they come across that way, yeah. Yeah, I, that seems like a really mad thing to say, but mm. let's go for it. Hillary Clinton is evil. And I think a lot of people on this side of the of the pond, as they say, I think that when you heard Trump say crooked Hillary, they were just like, well, he's mm. clever at this and, you know, he's obviously vicious and stuff. And you think, no, that, that is, as you say, it's tapping into a real historical memory, just more for people who lived in the yeah. United States. I mean, she, but she covered up, like, stuff that Bill had done I mean, he is also evil. Mm. Um, these are just really quite despicable people. Mm-hmm. I'm really like watching the the selection for the Democratic presidential candidate, like quite excitedly. I read the other day that there's only three candidates that have double digit polling, and it's Biden, oh dear, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> Warren, oh dear, mm-hmm. and Daddy Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. and I. I mean, I just, it would be incredible if it was Bernie. I have a really bad feeling it's going to be Warren, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's been these stories. I think the Washington Post published one about how she's like briefing against Sanders to the kind of the apparatchiks within the Democratic yeah. Party already. And, and there will there'll be a common sense emerging on parts of the right of the Democratic establishment that Warren can capture the millennials. Um, but she's will ultimately be a safe pair of hands and there is actually a problem that Biden can't string a sentence together, right? There will be parts of the democratic establishment who say, yeah, this is a controllable, like, renewal process. Yeah. She will renew, but fundamentally she will support American capitalism and won't create dangerous situations that Bernie Sanders might do. Yeah, Ber- I think Bernie will. Like, I mean, Bernie isn't, like, he's not a perfect candidate, um, obviously he is really weak on like American foreign policy uh-huh. for example like that is Sanders kind of weakest area mm-hmm. um, for someone like me um, but of course he is the best candidate and I'm dead excited about the prospect of like Bernie doing like a lot better this time mm-hmm. um, than last time mm-hmm. I think he's certainly defining the race yeah. Um, and that has that's good and bad. Like he's running that entire race mm-hmm. as like a single issue campaign. It's all on Medicare for all, mm-hmm. Medicare for all, um, which I think is smart. I think that is a smart move for him to do. Um, I also just kind of like love him. I watched the video from uh, the last kind of presidential candidate campaign where the little bird lands on his lectern. Oh yeah, you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's very. I like, mean, if that's not a sign from God, mm-hmm. then I don't know what is. That's what that's. I was thinking that it's sort of it's like very much something from like the peasant trouble or something, isn't it? I thought it was like it's like Disney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what it's really funny watching it because like it lands and everyone starts cheering, but like you can see the you know the sort of picture. I mean, it's like Bernie's in the front foreground. And then his crowd are sort of behind him and like they're all looking up to the sky. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, praise me. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great moment. You had another, though, interface with American popular culture and American politics. You went to go and see the sequel to It. I did. Mm -hmm. Oh, I did. I went to see It, chapter two. I mean, it's it's trash. Mm. It's a trashy movie, but... I really like that. 
there's some really good scares in it. Like I love horror films. I like being scared in the, in the cinema. I really like Pennywise, the clown. Um, I think Pennywise is very funny. He's a very effective clown. Like he's chasing this like fat kid down a corridor, being like, "Boohoo! Nobody loves you," mm. <laughs> which I <laughs> think is just it's very circusy. Um, but but is it a reflection of like the current? culture war climate in the US because this is what kind of put me off um, Stranger Things yeah especially when do you remember the guy who's in that he made a speech and he said um, he said uh, Stranger Things is a story about a bunch of outsiders and misfits who band together against an evil foe and that's who we are against Trump and I just thought you know yeah way to go with that one like we're a bunch of misfits against Trump. I'm always really wary of trying to shove like films and stuff through like a political and cultural lens. Like yeah. at risk of sounding like an autonomous, I do think sometimes art exists mm-hmm. for art's sake. Um, but I think you mentioned Stranger Things there because there, there's a lot of nostalgia around like the kind of Reaganite Cold War era. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in season three of, of Stranger Things mm-hmm. but it's like told from a liberal perspective mm-hmm. very weird like I've never really I've always thought of nostalgia in that sense as like being quite reactionary mm-hmm. but in it, chapter two there I did look this up afterwards because I was thinking so basically the plot is that the kids from the first film this is them coming back to Derry um, because the because it has come back mm-hmm. um, and they're kind of like called back to Derry by one of their friends who's never left they don't really remember much about their childhood um, and there's a kind of really laboured point about unresolved childhood trauma no, but no. the whole thing is like that Derry this town is there is an evil underneath it uh-huh. And this, the film opens with this incredibly gratuitously, like, very indulgent, violent scene of a homophobic attack mm-hmm. that doesn't seem entirely connected to the rest of the plot, but it's really vicious. So it's like there's a, car- a carnival fairground, there's a gay couple, and they are beaten by the town rednecks, the uh, locals. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about who who's from here like are you from here you're outsiders and we live here which I thought was kind of that seemed to me like a very obvious way of like trying to situate the film in the contemporary climate so I did look it up afterwards and the the filmmaker um Andy Muschietti basically has he's said that it's a film a horror film for contemporary times Mm -hmm. and that he says I've got the quote here he says that Pennywise the clown is he has things in common with Donald Trump yeah yeah. I think I mean I kind of want to eye roll very hard at this because this is the sort of stuff this is the reason I don't go see a lot of films at the Mm -hmm. cinema like big blockbusters because I always worry that they're going to be too liberalified like that Mm -hmm. Mary Queen of Scots Oh yeah, Mary Queen of Woke. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the filmmaker Andy Muschietti, he says that Donald Trump and Pennywise the Clown have loads of things in common and one of them is, this quote is, the clown is trying to divide the losers all the time to turn them against themselves and make them weaker. That's how he conquers. That's how he tries to conquer them and destroy them. Again though, the losers... I mean, where's this ridiculous self-image come from the kind of the democratic camp in the US that we are the losers and the oddballs and the misfits who are therefore morally just? I mean, there are quite That's a very a American coming-of-age kind of trope, <laughs> but it's, it's bizarre when it's given a political application. He says, um, we live in a culture of fear. Leaders are trying to divide people, to control us, to conquer us, to turn us against each other. And there's this bit in the film, listen... There are spoilers coming up, Mm. so, I mean, I guess that you can fast-forward this bit. But at the end, the way that they try to destroy the clown, so at the end, it is in its formation as, like, the clown's head with, like, the big spider legs, which is obviously quite comical. Mm. But these adults, who all come from, like, the kind of middle class, or, like, the the fairly, like, kind of, like, upper middle class, like, one is a successful stand-up comic, one is a successful writer, one is, like, a top insurance salesman, like, all these kind of, like, they are the middle class, Mm. like, coming back to their small town, and basically they destroy it by calling 
names mm. because they need to make him small. They mm-hmm. need to make him small. And it's like, there's more than one way to make someone small. Mm. And then they start like surrounding, I keep going to say Trump because it's just like, there's really ham-fisted metaphor. Mm-hmm. And they just say, oh, you evil clown, you're a parasite, you're a moron, like you're a mimic, blah, blah, blah. And like, and as they're hurling these insults, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that is, there's a certain strategy uh, in liberalism for that's how you deal with right-wing politics. You mock it, you don't take it seriously, or you subject it to a series of sort of administrative ordeals. <laughs> you know what I mean? You uh, try and impeach it or take it to court, or but yeah. it's never mass in political. No. Yeah. You know, taking Trump to court or trying to impeach or whatever it is. Like, I get that. It's a tactic, but basically that's what the Democrats in America have done since Trump came to power. Yeah. Well, and it got them nowhere. Nothing. Yeah. I got them nowhere. And Trump doesn't do that by and large. I mean, I'm not saying he's never taken the people people to court and so on. What I'm saying is he does try and win the win politics. He, he does, does address the population constantly and in an often demented way. He does also call people names. He does Elizabeth also call Warren. <laughs> oh, yeah. For example. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, and and besides I mean we were trying to omit a conversation of uh British politics, but just one we mentioned that as the crisis has reached its kind of apex, you've seen that culture here as well. Mm. That sort of um, death by a thousand administrative initiatives. Yeah, death by a thousand procedures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's an attempt to avoid politics. Uh, it's an attempt by that kind of um, politically vacuous liberal element to avoid an actual political confrontation. I think those kind of like procedural tactics like are just that. Like maybe they can be deployed effectively. I don't really know where. The only time that I see procedural tactics deployed to win a political argument is in the trade unions, of course. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like if you know the rule book, then you know the bloody rule book and no one can mess with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when it comes to parliament and actually trying to build a resistance to the Tories, like this procedural stuff is sucking the momentum out of everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The last thing I wanted to ask about it, though, was the phenomenon of monsters and the kind of ascendancy of um, of horror. Because people keep saying this. You know, like Mark Campbell keeps saying this, that um, the horror genre is so much in the ascendancy that it started to take over other genres. Um, the, an example he used of this was that I don't know if you've seen this, that really good film, um, Phantom Thread. Mm, I have not seen Which it. is a romantic film, and it is entirely a romantic film. There are no supernatural elements, there are no, um, you know, like thriller type elements, really, but it's shot like a horror film. Mm. And there's a lot of suspense, and a lot, there's a slightly kind of sinister tone. There's a slightly sinister tone to a lot of cultural output now. I think we live in like quite a sinister time. I think that is a kind of reflection. I feel like there's a lot of sort of cynical output as well. Mm-hmm. I remember having a very traumatic experience to the cinema where I went to see one of the like they were re-showing Blue Velvet. It was like an anniversary screening uh-huh. at the GFT. I went and there was like people there who were a bit younger than myself. And as we were watching it, they were laughing. They were laughing at Blue Velvet. And I was like, and I'm not being, like, I don't mean this in a sort of, like, snobbish way. Mm. Um, I just mean, like, wow. Like, I was really, that's so jarring. Like, see that that harrowing scene where, like, Isabella Rossellini is, like, standing naked in the living room. And Laura Dern starts screaming. Like, all of that. People were giggling at that. Because I think that they, they felt that... I don't know, David Lynch is kind of like doing things with a hint of irony, but he's actually a very sincere yeah. filmmaker, a very sincere director. Uh-huh. Um, I do think that like that for me was like, there's probably loads that we can go into about like, like Gen X, millennial, those different cultural outputs. Yeah. How the, they receive differently. Yeah. They receive very differently. Um, I remember, I noticed that with the film um, Neds. Do you remember that? That that film is ridiculous. Yeah, I didn't like the film. That the, that's the one where the Edward Scissorhands bit at the end, yes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where uh, where he duct tapes some knives to his hands, charging it all over the place. I remember thinking that was a really disappointing film. I'm not sure why it was so critically well received at the time. But there was another bit in that where part of the story, story revolves around this abusive father figure 
and every night he gets drunk and, you know, abuses their mother in ways that are not disclosed. But it is one of the few bits in the film that's actually sinister, mm. right? And, yeah, people kept laughing through it. It's partly, I think, like, like, as in, like, a coping mechanism. Yeah. Because it was so dark. Yeah, I think there's that kind of, like, coping mechanism and the catharsis of, like, laughing. So when you were talking earlier on about whenever you saw, like, something rude on TV and your mm. your dad was there, there would be, like, a kind of reaction to that. And, you know, you can either laugh or talk or whatever it is. I think there's that. But I think when it comes to films like, like Blue Velvet, for example, that there is because of the way that that's shot and because it's so deeply sincere people think that there's just no way that that could be for real like that mm. those react i know like but the, those reactions are just they seem daft mm. they seem frivolous like but this genuine sincerity seems like something to that's trying to be post-ironic or whatever the fuck you call it yeah i mean it's a bit like what we were talking about last week about yeah like the rise of irony and the inability of people to metabolise culture in a way that doesn't involve irony or humour or sarcasm or do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I do have a potential real life horror movie that we can all tune into though. Mm-hmm. My friend tweeted this today and it's a, I think it's like a photograph of a leaflet. Um, very basic leaflet. I'll tweet this out um, after we finish recording so everyone can enjoy its beauty it's a flyer for an event taking place on friday the 13th of september and thursday the 19th of september um, at 7 p.m um organized by happy science london i don't know who they are someone told me they were like a japanese cult <laughs> i should have probably googled them before i name dropped them yeah. just in case i end up i don't know hexed or something yeah um Happy science. Happy science. Uh, But they are holding a seance. This leaflet says, no deal Brexit. Margaret Thatcher's message from spirit world. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Um, So basically this group are holding some kind of seance or spiritual event where they're going to ask Margaret Thatcher questions from the spirit world. About Brexit. Well, it says here they're gonna. They're asking, was she an angel or devil? <laughs> <laughs> She's in hell. Um, where is her spirit now? Her current messages to people in the UK, <laughs> and what does she think about the current Brexit issue? Um, I think that you can, you can. It says you can watch the spiritual message. It's got a QR code, which already seems very retro, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Having a QR code on a leaflet. It says scan the QR code to watch the spiritual message. Um, See, when you say what she has to say now, right? Did you watch that, that Thatcher's Revolution documentary series on the BBC? Mm. So there's one bit in that towards the end. Um, she talks about the... the in the films, the, her former ministers and aides and stuff talk about how they occasionally went to go and visit her after she was kicked out of power and that she would constantly try and receive their advice on how to deal with problems in the country. So she psychologically never recovered from being kicked out of office and she probably suffered from like dementia for a long time during which she increasingly sort of thought that she was prime minister, right? Like, so here's the thing. Is her, does her spirit have dementia? That that's where I'm going with this line of questioning, right? <laughs> is is she gonna come back in this seance and, and be like, how do we solve the deficit or what about the global recession or something like that? But she used to literally do that. She used to take advice from her ministers years after she was out of office. And did people just humour her? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what else can you do? Be like the, the loneliness of power and so on. Oh, yeah. that's really that's really grim. Yeah, so um, if you are tuning into the seance, just know that it might be a bit of a downer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm definitely going to tune in. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really, I'm really up for that. I, I'm sure there's like a million questions that we could ask. The the spirit of Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher was a monster. Yeah, Thatcher was a, a monster. Like, this is the thing I quite... Do you think that the left miss the monster of Margaret Thatcher? Maybe what is compelling me about this insane leaflet is, like, I want... There's, there's a monster that I want back, mm-hmm. in a sense. Like, I, 
I mean, the Thatcher death party was one of the greatest days of all time. That was yeah. so much fun. Yeah. I love the fact that a group of us in Glasgow ended up on Fox News. Oh, yeah. And that video of us... A very kind of moralising news report yeah, about how yeah. evil it was and so on. Yeah. And that, that old woman who was in George Square, and she's a hero, she's just that one, too bad, too bad. Seen yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, that's fantastic. But, yeah, I think that in a world where you have figures like Trump and innumerable others, Erdogan, you know, people like that, it's more difficult to construct... A monster because they've already kind of busted the bones of that. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher persistently pretended that she was human, and that's one of the things that made her so creepy because you knew it was a pretense. Do you know what I mean? That is like Pennywise the Clown. Yeah. <laughs> she had to go around like she was just a, like a normal human being with normal human emotions, um, normal human sentimentalities, and stuff like that. Yeah, right? she was a Tory LARPing as a human. Yeah. Um, uh, but you knew that she was just like a husk. Uh, the soul had been sold to the devil years and yeah. years before. For, right um so i mean that is genuinely sinister right mm. watching a reanimated corpse is sinister right so um, are you saying that we've already watched like a reanimated corpse so that was like phase one thatcher uh-huh. but but trump's i mean trump's just goes around saying yeah i'm, a, I'm an evil guy who cares who cares <laughs> you mean right. sound a bit like something else yes he is quite a feminine though Trump is effeminate. But there's something that you do that makes him sound like Trump versus someone else. It's like a... Like a mashup. Mashup. Yeah. Yeah. I think Trump is really easy to monster. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's... Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It leads to very little creative effort. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of the the jokes at Trump's expense are extremely cheap and lazy. Yeah, they do feel lazy. It's Mm -hmm. a cheap sort of monstering. Mm -hmm. And whereas Thatcher's quite a good adversary. Do you mean she makes a good monster? Yeah, she seems sort of very dangerous. Um, I mean, this is an old tradition, though, and there's an old tradition in kind of left-wing politics of constructing monsters. Yeah. You know, when Marx, for example... Marx was obsessed with vampires. Yeah. He's always writing about vampires and capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, yeah, I think, as far as I understand this, the vampire thing comes from uh, the history of democratic revolutionary movements in, like, the 19th century uh, and before when um, the ruling class was seen as the aristocracy. Mm. Right. And of course, under capitalism, the aristocracy is kind of, you know, loses its prominence as a ruling class element. But they had become like a very popular image of what was wrong with society. I mean, when when um, Bram Stoker's Dracula is like the perfect archetype of that, he's, uh, he's pointless. Uh, mm. He lives alone in a big castle. Uh, he smells. Like there's a lot of stuff in... in um, Bram Stoker's Dracula about how yeah. he's he's rotting, he's yeah. physically rotting. Yeah. He's he's the product of an era that that should have been over a very long time ago, and that's what's so unpleasant and unnatural about him. That's what's disgusting about him, and that's very much about like the rise of sort of um, bourgeois sentiment about society. They need to modernise and progress and so on. Yeah, but I think that like when Marx is taught uses the. A motif of vampires and like uses that type of language to express what's happening in capitalism mm-hmm. I think that what I try and bear in mind is that when Marx is writing he doesn't have the language that we now use to talk about capitalism is language that we gained from Marx yeah. Like so the tools that we have now we have a particular language but when Marx is writing he is going through a framework of political and philosophical like languages mm-hmm. to describe things that don't really fit his thesis. Yeah. So he has to come up with these motifs, like yeah. these expressions. And the vampire is a perfect one for capitalism. Mm. Like this life force sucking out of yeah. blood. Like Because he had a very specific application for that vampire idea as well, which is the living labor versus dead labor thing. Mm. That and the the labour extracted through previous rounds of exploitation now operated as sort of a draining, leeching force on the actual people who were Mm. selling their labour, on actual working class people. And the thing that's 
so suited to like the idea of a monster or a supernatural force in that is it's a non-human process like human beings in a sense have been removed from that destructive situation and capital itself as a non-human force is exploiting mm. Mm. Uh, labor power, uh, which which gives that its really kind of effective appeal. That idea, and one horror genre I never got into. Like I love all those films, but one horror genre I never got into was zombies. Mm-hmm. Never been a fan of the old zombie, mm. but I do think it's an interesting motif for 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 work. Like, I think that that's where the idea of the zombie becomes quite interesting. So like in this context of like Marx using the vampires, the idea of the like the daywalker zombie mm-hmm. just on routine working on road, like just kind of mashing around the place. Because like what's I think has been forgotten in like a lot of Hollywood productions, like zombie films, is that the motif of the zombie is actually it's a Haitian creation Mm -hmm. and it was always a Mm labourer like under the spell of like a witch doctor that sort of thing and it was the living dead labourer and that's now become quite a big pop culture thing the zombie Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it is partly a a self-reflection on work and what work is doing to people's lives and I think that we've really forgotten how to talk about that on the left we talk a lot about like big ideas about like economy and internationalism but the day-to-day grind of getting up going to work clocking in doing that stuff clocking out coming home and by the time you get home you're so well the phrase i use is brain dead Mm, (laughs) like i'm so brain dead that i just want to like watch some netflix eat some food and yeah maybe like maybe sleep do you know what i mean like that's that's what i do and like that work time isn't seen as like for most people it's not seen as a space where they can be creative or fulfill their potential or there's nothing there you're just actually functioning that's dead time yeah like what is more zombie than that yeah and and there's something about um that kind of wage labor which it's a unique problem. I mean, I basically think, right, that people have about four or five hours of good work in them a day where you can concentrate on tasks, mental or physical, whatever, and achieve them. See, once you've spent that, there's no... You're absolutely right. Like, the, the, the working half of the day completely steals that yeah. you technically have a, the same number of hours outside what a lot I, of people do. I remember when I used to work um, in an office job, I will not disclose which... Um, but I used to work in an office job and I would honestly just like plan my entire life around trying to make sure that I had more hours outside of work, that I was awake and doing things than yeah. I did actually in work because the idea that I did more in work than out of work just crushed me. Yeah. It just really crushed me. I just couldn't really deal with that. Yeah, it, it makes your life seem like somewhat pointless once you realise yeah. you spend more time working. Yeah. But like, what a perfect expression of like, particularly modern capitalism than like work being seen as dead time. It's the zombie. Yeah. Like it is that is the living dead. You know, there's a whole there's a whole school of like critical theory and stuff around zombie films. I mean, obviously, historically in the US, for example, they were used to explore various issues. There was like that one of those Romero ones that's about all the zombies are in a uh, shopping mall during the rise of shopping malls. And that was quite a kind of uh, jaded look at the working class. So look at how stupid they've become going around buying things and stuff like that. There's an interesting moment around the turn of the century where zombies stop stop walking and start running. Mm. And the suspicion is, or I've heard it said, that the suspicion is that the reason for this is for whatever reason, at a certain point in the development of neoliberalism, um, uh, zombies, the working class stopped being viewed as um, uh, stupid and lumbering and started being viewed as feral. Um, and that was about the time that, um, first of all, a certain, like a, a series of mass demonstrations, the largest in a very long time, started to emerge. But it was also the time at which a certain view of policing was coming into play. Mm. And there was an attitude that there were large elements of the working class who 
were no longer ne- needed in society. This was the popular view of New Labour, that the, the society was based on, it was called like the three-thirds theory. A third of the population are rich, a third of the population are middle class, and then the working class is gone, and a third of the population is like a sort of subclass, mm. which are semi-criminal, liable to drop in and out of work, prone to precarious work mm. and stuff like that. It was actually an early explanation of what people like Guy Standing called the condition of like yeah, precarity yeah. and stuff, right? But the but elements of the ruling class around projects like New Labour and Clinton's Democrats and stuff like that said, no, this is what the end of the working class looks like. But that's not just a progressive development. It means that you get a sort of disgusting kind of lump and underclass that yeah. needs to be dealt with in some way. And so zombies start kind of running and being demented mm-hmm. as that kind of theory of the working class is imagined. What you're saying about like that has been a reflection of like that view of the working class is interesting because I think about one of the most obvious monsters being Frankenstein. Mm. And when that's written, Mary Shelley at that time would have been exposed to big arguments from like the Luddites. Do you know what I mean? Because that's a phase of like transition within capitalism to it's like, do you know I mean? The technological drive of capitalism is quickening and quickening. You have the Luddites who are not, they're not just like smashing up machines. Like, but that's one of the a, things with the, yeah, the were saboteurs, yeah. Yeah. But then this is, is under these conditions that Mary Shelley writes mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Like, whereas, you know, that is actually like a, it's a, it's a robot essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I think she's sort of addressing questions like, um, well, I suppose a genuine, genuine sort of general concern in society about industrialization. Yeah, and that is, of course, an enormous cultural preoccupation of various artistic movements, like romantic artistic movements, literary movements, and stuff like that. Is in what does life consist? Like, if um, if you're having an increasingly mechanised, production-based society, uh, most artistic movements, like the arts and crafts movement and all that kind of stuff, their generalised attitude was, well, life is going to be degraded and reduced in society, uh, and we're going to lose spiritual life and things like that. I always think that's interesting that the the very first generations to come into contact with that breakneck industrialization. Uh, early in earlier phases of capitalism, instantly recognised, if not that it was bad in the round, its dual character. Mm. They didn't just say, "Well, this is great. We're going to end up with loads of stuff." Like that's a type of utopianism that comes yeah. later, attached to technologies. Um, traditionally, human beings have used, used viewed technological progress in a more pragmatic way. Yeah. I mean, I think to return to this kind of idea of the the zombie, have you ever said, have you ever described yourself as a zombie after a really long working day? I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. me too. Like, I've said, like, I'm zombified. Uh-huh. Like, I use that definitely, like, as an expression. Uh-huh. Um, but what's missed, I think, sometimes is again like returning to this like original idea of the zombie as like the Haitian laborer you also get it in like sub-Saharan Africa and like um literature things like that these these types of zombies they all can awaken right but we don't really get that in our do you know I mean like the Hollywood made movies and stuff like that they're the gone zombies. forever yeah yeah but like like actual these monsters like can have an awakening they can have this um under certain conditions they they can sort of like come to life and that's when you have like this carnival of living dead uh, parading through the streets scaring polite society like that type of working class like this um, resistance uh-huh. do you know what i mean like it's like the class come to life especially like you know it's been the zombified brain dead laborer <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So then under certain conditions, they come together and they march through the streets and everyone is freaking out. But really, it's the zombies that have the power. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in any case, the zombie is a vehicle for horrors probably expended himself at this point because they turned it into one of these endless fucking shit programs with 20 series or something. Yeah. I mean, I just never it's a bit really... like lost with zombies or something. I just never really connected with it at all. Yeah. Um, 
I in zombie films the thing I like most is like the kind of like anticipation of people like getting caught by zombies I really like in movies like putting myself in the situation of like what would you do mm-hmm. what would you do if there was like some kind of mass outbreak of a disease that caused everyone to go crazy or whatever I love putting myself in those situations mm-hmm. and mentally not actually <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, no. Did you see the uh, tweet from Police Scotland about the grab bag? Yeah, I mean, that's... that is. I mean, this has actually just occurred to me there. This was not planned. Yeah. No, but basically, if you've not seen it, Police Scotland tweeted out something quite um, fascinating, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is constant irritation to me, Americanisms. What do they call a torch and a flashlight? <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Wait, we've got to explain what it is first. So let's explain to listeners, just in case they haven't had the chance to see it yet. Okay, Police Scotland control rooms. They've tweeted September is prepared this month. Mm-hmm. Emergencies can happen at any time, and it's recommended to have a hashtag grab bag ready containing essential items, including medication copies of important documents, food, water, torch, radio, and other personal items. In the graphic, it is called the flashlight. Mm-hmm. Because in the graphic is then a picture of what they're calling the grab-and-go bag, and it's a rucksack that has all these things in it. Does it say grab-and-go or grab-and-go? <laughs> it's not fast food, so it's grab-and-go. <laughs> um, do you know what this is about? Because uh, I thought it was just Police Scotland at first. It's every single police force is, is tweeting this out, right? And it's not because there's such a thing as prepared this month or whatever <laughs> it's been called, which does sound like something a religious cult, right? Um, it's because every department and every major institution and agency in society is lobbying the new government for funding. So... The, the police forces have been starved as they see it of funds over uh, the last uh, 10 years they're desperate to claw some money back they know that um, Boris Johnson's plan is to chuck some new funding around uh, and so they're desperately trying to you know grab grab it grab and go is that true? Yeah, that's what it's all about. Because I'm like other people are posting screenshots of Calderdale Council. <laughs> yeah. What, are they also putting out... Uh, yeah, but they've made it into a game. They've called it um, Complete the Grab Bag Bingo to see what you should include. What else would you add? And it's about Brexit as well, of course. It's about, yeah. it's about trying to harness the feeling in society that something terrible might be about to happen. But towards those kind of cynical ends, it's trying to raise funds from central government. That's that's really interesting. Like I will be completely honest about this um, grab and go bag. I find it absolutely thrilling. Mm-hmm. I find it thrilling that the the idea that the authorities are like there might be an emergency any second. And now. we're not going to help you. We can't help you. I like to to, why. What is wrong with me? Have I been so psychologically damaged by politics that I'm like? You want a zombie apocalypse? <laughs> yeah. Well, but, no, that's a revolution, right? Yeah. Is that actually what this is? Maybe on some subconscious level, like, well, we are sort of, we are kind of like monsters of the left, I think. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So people will probably be listening to this being like, Cat Boyd and David James and the snarky trots are desperate for a zombie apocalypse uh, just so they can make an intervention. And, yeah, 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 hand out some leaflets. Hand out so some forth. leaflets. Yeah. Um, people to their trot cult. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. You get called stuff like that, you know, you're a disaster socialist, this is a phrase that gets chucked around. We yeah. get called disaster socialists a lot. Yeah. Um, what was that meme that you saw? Oh, um, oh, yeah. It was like, right, so it's that meme where it's like, I don't know, it must be used in some language school or something. And um, it's like a Japanese animation type thing. Is this the boy with the butterfly? Yeah, the but- is, this? is this? And it's yeah. something that it obviously isn't, right? Um, but for us, it was like, uh, um, it said something like Brexit, yellow vests, and uh, wings over Scotland's readers or something. And then it said, is this like a path to a work- mass workers movement or something <laughs> like that? Um I just, the only thing about that that I didn't like was the suggestion that I don't fucking love the yellow vests. I love the yellow vests. Uh, yeah. But you also love Brexit. Yeah, I, but I don't do any of that kind of... Uh, 
ironically or no, pretentiously. No. I actually think Can these I just are good say, things. Like in my sort of, I would just like to say that in my memory of things, the reason that I got dropped from the national was mm. because I wrote an article called "Victory to the Gilets Jaunes." <laughs> Yeah, but very few other people on the left were saying it. No one was why. saying it. No one was saying it. I think that the Gilets Jaunes is one of the most exciting movements to happen. Like since Absolutely. the kind of the big anti—I mean, big anti-austerity movements that were just about anti—that were just mm-hmm. anti-austerity. Like in Greece, the occupations of the squares in Spain, mm-hmm. um, like kind of on the back of the Arab Spring. Like all of that was a really exciting political time, and the mm-hmm. Gilets Jaunes is the first thing that I've seen that kind of ignited the little spark in me that was like, oh yes, this is, this is good stuff. I'm, I, the thing that really appealed to me about them was that time when they, um, they seized the Arc de Triomphe and the, um, and the, this sort of Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or whatever it's called. Because that to me was honestly the most assertive image I've ever seen from the left in my lifetime. Because what they were saying were, was, we are the real country. Mm. We are the real nation, right? This unknown soldier died for us. The Arc de Triomphe is about our triumph, mm. right? And that's also why I think a lot of people on the left don't like it. A lot of people on the left don't like it because it doesn't conform to the way that left-wing things should look, right? Yeah. It doesn't conform to that. It's quite messy and it's, I want to say ugly, but I mean that in an aesthetic sense. Like that, it's jarring with our idea of what a protest would look like. It's the same as like a lot of the big indie marches. Yeah. Like I think that they they don't look like how left wing protests look. But if you go around that demonstration and you said you think that we should like tax the richest and use it to redistribute wealth, I pretty much am certain that most You'd people would be like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think that most people would be yeah. Those demonstrations are left wing, but I think that there's elements of the left that are super squeamish about even going anywhere near it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's I think that's dead snobby. Yeah, and and you would find as well that it's uh, it's very contradictory. So uh, in all those in all those movements, Brexit, Julie Jean, Scottish independence movement, there, there's a lot of like anti politics involved. Sometimes like really. Uh, self-consciously and in a really articulated way. I remember going to the All-in-One Banner demonstration in Dumfries and uh, I was on the train down from Glasgow, right? And it was wild, right? I mean, the number of people on that train with... um, uh, you know, like the, the Spanish Republic yeah. badge and Catalan flags yeah. and Catalan badges and Palestine stuff and, you know, just stuff about austerity. And see, on the way down, I, sort of went around the carriages and all the conversations I could hear were about pensions, Trident, Palestine, war, Catalonia. Yeah. A really broad body of entirely left-wing opinion. And then I'd hear the same people say, uh, raging about all this stuff, I then hear them say, but this isn't about politics. Independence isn't about politics. Right? And I actually mm. hear people say things like, independence is about pensions, independence is about trident, independence is about all that kind of stuff, but it's not about politics. Don't talk about politics. Which is interesting to me in the, the dynamic of anti-politics. I'm not going to say that that's a good thing. I don't, I don't think in the main it is. But it's interesting to me that for a lot of people, the word politics is attached to a body of behaviour which is irrelevant to the real issues, um, irrelevant, irrelevant to issues of sort of values and, you know, equality and inequality and social injustice and stuff like that. And it's just a professional sphere for cynics mm. and career makers and stuff like that. I mean, this is the thing is like that movement that you're describing it is all, it's very messy and yeah. it's full of contradictions because that is actually how people are. Yeah. Like, and this is the same chat that we had last week, which is about um, like people having reactionary views on some social issues mm-hmm. um, or speaking in the wrong language when it comes yeah. to social issues, I think is probably more accurate. Yeah. Um, the people are full of contradictions. Yeah. I mean, I even, I find them in myself all the time. Um, but politics is a messy process. But people on the left, like, we get called opportunists. But it's just because we're prepared to get our hands dirty. Yeah. Should that be edited out? No. Nah. <laughs> See, this is the thing, though. Like, when it comes to this podcast, there's part of me that's like, 
I say something and then I'm like, should I edit that out? Because I know that I'll get nipped for it. And I, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I've, I've, um, I've said it before and possibly on this podcast, I'm going to say it again. If your main ambition in life is to get to the end of it and say that you've not done anything wrong, don't do politics, right? Because you will make an arse of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but to be honest, you know, don't do anything useful. Yeah. Just be a shut-in. Because it's probably the easiest way, uh, you know. You, be you, a shut-in and write, like, call people snarky on the internet. Get yeah, get a blog, right? And get a blog, but also get a domain name that's like yourname.com. Yeah. <laughs> and write uh, an endless series of diatribes having a go at people. Yeah, or alternatively, um, you could write some uh, angry letters into the National about me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really know if I should tell Kat this, but I, I can't help myself. The other day, I found yet another letter in the National. Can I just say, I stopped writing for them at the end of last year. Yeah. So I think it was December. I remember but- I got sacked in December. <laughs> I'm kind of joking. <laughs> I want to be like, I got sacked just as Christmas was coming up yeah um, I got let go <laughs> yeah and that was Tiny Tim Fox uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tiny uh, Tim R.I.P it's the Nationals fault yeah the Cybernats ate my Christmas <laughs> but there are still old guys writing letters to the National about you I find this fascinating yeah. obviously like there's part of me that's kind of freaked out by it but yeah. I'm also a little bit I'm really glad that I rattled some cages. Do you remember? Do you remember that um, that music video with Eminem, the one with the the, the Dido song in it, right? <laughs> and there's a guy in a basement going increasingly crazy, scribbling away little letters yeah. to Eminem. That's how I imagine these guys. Wait, is there not an episode of South Park where like Cartman gets really obese and just spends his time on the internet? World of Warcraft, yeah. But then he's playing against the guy who's the king of Warcraft. Yeah. Right? And it. then you find you, when you see him, he's just like he's he's a sort of jab of the heart creature living in squalor in a basement. <laughs> yeah. Writing letters to the national. Yeah. <laughs> There's gotta be some way to pass the time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like this is this is fucking Thatcher. This is kid in the community. That's what this has spawned. The generation <laughs> of like angry old men writing yeah. letters. About the nat- to the national about you. Yeah. Thanks, Mrs. Thatcher. Maybe I'll ask her about that when she's <laughs> yeah, when she's on the dialing yeah. <laughs> dialing seance. Yeah. Housing, letters to the national, you know, your your list of fuck ups is long. But do you know what I can't wait to tell her? Yeah. That a United Ireland is on its way. <laughs> See if there is. See if you can tune into this weird cult that's doing this. Could you actually ask your own questions? I don't know. It just says that you can like. It says scan the QR code, but I'm totally going to tell her that United Ireland is. Yeah. TikTok Maggie is coming. Yeah, yeah. What should we have as our outro music? I think we should have something about United Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. We're going to leave it there for this week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. You can tweet us any feedback at kittycatboyed uh, or at David, David underscore Jameson7. I love that Twitter handle, <laughs> Snap, snap. Yeah. Um, but you can also follow Contour at Contour Scott. David and I also set up a Patreon, which is basically where you can donate some money to help us continue making ConnorCast. Yeah, we're having quite a good time doing it, but we want to be able to um, put on some events around ConnorCast, like do some live broadcasts, that kind of stuff. So if you want to help make the podcast grow, then you can donate on patreon.com forward slash ConnorCast. See you next week. Say goodbye. Goodbye. (coughs) Rattle out. That's fine. I was born on a Dublin street where the Lyle drums did beat. The loving English feet that walked all over us. And every single night when me dad would come home tight He'd invite the neighbours out with this chorus Come on, shake the and tans Come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders And our the IRA made you run like hell away From the green and lovely lanes of Hillishandra Come on, shake the and tans Come out and fight me like a man
let us hear you tell How you slandered great Parnell When you taught them a well and truly persecuted What are the sneers and jeers that you loudly let us hear When our leaders of 16 were executed Green and lovely lanes of Kilshandra. 